Yeah, welcome. Um, if you didn't hear, my name's Rob. I'm part of the leadership team here at the church, and I'd love to extend my welcome to you as well today. It's great having so many of you with us. So we made it to December. We're in that time of Advent, aren't we? As we've already talked about Christmas, we're getting ready to think again about the birth of Christ. We're thinking about that story that we're so familiar with, the uh, Mary and Joseph. Uh, thank you. There we go. Yes, there we go. Seamless. Um, Mary and Joseph traveling to Bethlehem, the star, the wise men with their gifts, Jesus being born in, in the stable, there's no room in the inn, the angels announcing the birth, uh, glory to God in the highest and peace on earth. We get so familiar with the story, can't we? And at this Christmas season, we've, uh, we're going to have a Christmas uh, theme of peace, can't miss it, and I'd also like to say well done to those who've done the decoration, that looks fantastic. And... So our theme is peace with God, as Owen was saying, and each week we'll be thinking about that theme of peace and different aspects of peace. Um, and today I'll be talking on peace with God. What does that mean? What does it mean to have peace with God? Why do we need it? How can we have it? Um, and a great place to look at this is Romans 5. So if you've got a Bible, I'd like to encourage you to find Romans 5 now. If you haven't got it, it should appear behind me. So peace with God. So Romans 5 says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So I want to um, explore that passage in Romans 5, but with a focus on that first verse. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I want to look at what it means to have, what peace of, with God is, how we have it through Jesus, the role of faith, and what it means to be justified. So what is peace with God? The Bible, uh, in the Bible, the word for peace is shalom, which you may have heard before, and it has a far more richer meaning than just our word peace. When you think of peace, what comes to mind? Peace and quiet, a break from the kids perhaps, the absence of war or arguments, feeling calm. You know, and all of those are correct, but the biblical word for peace carries much more of a rich meaning. It's, it's, as well as those, it's about wholeness, completeness, about well-being, restoration, and reconciliation. So keep those all in mind as we uh, mention peace over this time. Peace with God is about the state of our relationship with God. It's the peace between us and him. It's the sort of peace that, that can only be between two parties, two people, two groups, two nations. It's when you have peace with someone and they have peace with you. 
Yes, you can be peaceful towards someone, even if they're not being very kind to you. You can show patience and kindness, even if they may not treat you the same. You know, the Bible teaches us to live peaceably with others, even if they don't return it. And I know Jenny will speak more on this next week. Sadly for Georgie and I, we know what it's like to not be at peace with others. Uh, when we were in London, we, we sadly experienced some very difficult and challenging neighbours. We were not at peace with them at all. We did what we could to be peaceful towards them. We prayed for them. We were always kind to them. We were ready to help if they ever asked. We were never going to hold anything back. But it wasn't easy, and it was quite upsetting. But this peace today that we're talking about is when it's an equal peace. Both parties are at peace with each other. There's no animosity but trust. It's about longing to see the best for another. It's not just about putting up with them and smiling when you're with them, but be, you know, deep down you don't like them. It's about a genuine love and care between both. There's no anxiety. You know, you're not worried that one's going to suddenly change their mind and do something behind your back and damage the relationship. You know, we all know how sad it is when a relationship fails and peace is lost between two people, or when a nation breaks a peace agreement with another nation. It only takes one side to break the peace, doesn't it? But it takes both to maintain the peace. So I thought to help us understand what peace with God is, I thought I'd just look for a moment at what it means to not have peace with God. What does that look like? As we see in this passage in Romans 5, it says we were enemies with God. This means we were living against him. We didn't want to submit to his ways. We want to do it our way. Our selfish thoughts and actions go against a good and righteous God. In Romans 1, Paul writes that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. See, God is holy and perfect, and our sin has caused enmity with him. His wrath was against us. Sin comes at a price. Think about it like a bank account. Our sin puts us in debt with God. We're left in the red. We're left owing. We can't pay it back when we consider what we, our sin is like compared to his perfect standard. And the Bible says the wages of sin is death, in Romans 6. See, our sin damages that relationship with God. It causes an eternal separation with him. In 2 Thessalonians, Paul says, this is a warning to those who don't know God, they will suffer punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. As well as that, we can feel the weight of guilt for the things we've done wrong. If you're here today and you don't know God, we all know what it's like to feel guilty for the things we've done wrong. So sin, debt, guilt, death, separation, wrath, being enemies, these are all signs of what, it's, of what it means to not be at peace with God. But peace with God, thankfully, is the complete opposite. God can't ignore, sorry, God can't ignore our, our sin because our sin caused rebellion against him. It's like a barrier between us and him. We can't have peace while only those remain. But thankfully, peace with God is the opposite. To have peace with God is to mean that our relationship is one where none of those remain. So let's look at what that looks like. How are these removed? How can we remove this, this barrier between us? How can we have this peace with God? Well, it says in verse 8 of the passage I read, it says, but God. It says, but God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, peace with God is only possible through Jesus. 
It doesn't say, but we. It doesn't say, but I. No, but I'm a really good person. But we tried really hard. But I did all those religious things. It says, but God, thankfully. It says, he loved us even when our sin caused that separation and we deserved the punishment. Jesus came down to us as a man and took that punishment on himself to remove those barriers between us that we could not remove ourselves. Later in verse 8, it says, We were saved by him from the wrath of God. Before, you're we under the wrath of God, but now, thanks to God, we can now, now with Christ, sorry, I'll read that again. We were under the wrath of God because of our ungodliness, but now in Christ, we are saved from his wrath. Jesus took that wrath on himself so that it wouldn't be on us anymore. Verse 2 says, we, we have now obtained access by faith into the grace in which we stand. Before we were distant from him, separated, but now we can stand securely in our position with him. In Hebrews 4, it goes further and says, we can draw near to the throne of grace with confidence that we will receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It says in Romans 15, we are welcomed by Christ. It says in verse 2 of this passage, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Without him, we have no hope. But now we have an eternal hope of a glorious future with him. Verse 10, I can keep going on. It says, while we were enemies, we, we were enemies, but now we're reconciled to God. As it says clearly, we were against him, but now our friendship has been restored. Not by us, but by God. John 1, which Duncan shared, thankfully, earlier, it says that we're now children of God because of his love. We can come to him knowing him as a father. Ephesians 1 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. I love that, lavished upon us. We have been forgiven of all our sin. And because we've been forgiven, Paul writes in Colossians 2, You who are dead... In your sins, God made alive together with him. That punishment of death has been taken away, and now we're given life eternal. In the same verse, it says, God has cancelled the record of debts that stood against us. You know, our debt or sin was great, but that sin's now been paid. And going further, the weight of guilt is gone. It says in Romans 8, well-known verse, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God does not hold on to your record of sin. He doesn't hold it against you. If you're in Christ, you don't need to hold on to the guilt either. And while I was preparing, I really felt that was a word for someone here today. You really, we really need to know that. God does not hold your sin against you any longer. In Christ, you don't need to hold on to that guilt as well. And I'd love to pray for you later if that's for you. And to the Corinthians, Paul declares, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone Behold, the new has come. Do you see the difference that peace with God means to our lives, comparing the before and after, without Christ and with Christ? And this is a free gift, and it's available to us all. What's a gift? I don't know what you're expecting for Christmas this year, what your best gift could be, but I'd be surprised if it's as good as this gift, the gift of eternal life, peace with God. And that's why we celebrate Christmas, isn't it? Emmanuel, God with us. This is the festive season where we celebrate Christ's birth because without him, we have no hope. We have no hope of finding peace of God ourselves. 
I thought it was great what Jenny shared and others this morning as we remember that Jesus was the light of the world, that Christ was given to us. I love it in Luke 2, the moment where the angels announce the birth of the shepherds, and they declare, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. See, God gets the glory through Christ, and we get the peace through Christ. Amen? If you're here today and you've not received Jesus as Lord and Savior, then there'll be an opportunity at the end, and I'll lead you through a prayer. For the rest of us who've already received Christ, then my challenge is this. Who will you share this gift with this Christmas? This is not a gift we can just keep to ourselves, but one we must share with others. So God's done it all. He has taken the initiative by sending Christ. What's our part in peace with God? It's faith. We can't do anything else to earn this peace with God. There's nothing we can do to make ourselves right with God. We can't make this peace. Yes, we can be good people. We can live kind and generous lives. We can do religious things too. We can come to church. We can read our Bible. We can pray. But nothing we do ourselves can tip the scales without faith. It's all about faith. I know that for myself. I, uh, as a child, I grew up going to church with my family, but going to church didn't make me a Christian. If I look back on my uh, childhood and teenage years before I was a Christian, I wouldn't say I went off the rails. I wasn't a bad kid. I was quite sensible. There's things I did I regretted. I wouldn't say I was that bad. But actually, when I became a Christian was the time when I realized, actually, my heart was selfish. I wasn't living for God. I knew that it didn't matter how good I thought I was in the world's standards. Actually, everything I'd done against God needed to be put right by Christ. Hopefully, it's still working. Yeah. So nothing we can do ourselves can make peace. It's only through Christ. It's through faith. It says in Isaiah 64 that our best efforts are filthy rags. But we're invited to have faith, and that's what's the difference. And it's not just about having a faith. You can put your faith in many different things. The difference is who we have faith in, and that's Christ. The one thing we can do to have peace with God is to put our faith in Christ. This faith is realizing that firstly we've sinned, and we can't be right with God ourselves, And it's believing and declaring that Jesus took our place. Our response is to repent and receive the forgiveness that he offers, knowing that his death and resurrection, through that only can we be right with him. Only then can we have peace with God. God is at peace with us, and we can be at peace with him. As Dr. Lloyd-Jones puts it, the communion between God and man, broken by sin and the fall, is re-established. So do you know this peace with God? This isn't the kind of peace that you just always feel. Yes, we can feel it, but it's not one that we always do feel. But it's a truth that we must hold on to in faith, especially in tough times, when you have times of doubt, when you may be facing accusations and difficult times in your life. If your faith is in Christ, this is a peace that we can hold on to. In that moment of faith and repentance, our standing with God changes. And that's the heart of the, of the first verse in Paul's passage on Romans 5. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, Jesus lived an absolutely perfect life. He did not sin even once. He was therefore right with God. He did nothing that would cause separation. He did nothing that would incur God's wrath upon him. 
He did not build up a debt of sin with God that needed to be reconciled. Jesus, therefore, did nothing deserving any punishment. But Jesus was arrested and treated like a criminal. He was crucified on a Roman cross, not for, for his sin, because there wasn't any, but it was for our sin. He took the punishment we deserved. But through faith, God declares us just. Our sin is no longer held against us. The penalty of sin is gone. We are declared righteous before God. We're treated like Jesus is. Isn't that amazing? God looks on us as he looks on his own son. He looks at us as pure, perfect, blameless. We are right with God. And this is justification. It's actually a legal term. If you look it up in a dictionary, it means to show or prove to be right or reasonable. So imagine you were in a court, you stood accused of breaking a law. If you were able to argue why it was reasonable to do do what you did, then you're trying to justify it, aren't you? If the judge agreed, then he'd say you are justified in your actions. But without Christ, we stand before a perfect God as sinners, and we have no defense. You can't justify your sin. You can't argue your way out of it before a God who knows everything about you. Now, a few weeks ago, I was actually the victim of a crime. Um, Don't worry, I wasn't hurt. But uh, someone stole my number plates off my car. Arguably, it's probably the most valuable thing on my car. Um, (laughs) But I hadn't actually realized. I mean, how often do you even look to see if your number plates are still on your car? I just assumed they were. It was actually Dan and Jackie who spotted it, and they thought one had fallen off, and I got to the car and... Both had been very carefully removed. Now, why does someone steal number plates? You may wonder. I've had to sort of think about this. So what happens is people steal number plates, and then they put them on another car. And then they go and do something that they shouldn't be, and they get away with it. That's what they do. So they might have been, you know, going to, yeah, it could have been something like getting petrol and then driving off without paying. It could have been going to commit, obviously, a far worse crime, perhaps speeding and joyriding in another car. But the problem is that my number plates are registered to my car and my name. So they can break the law, but I might get the blame for it. Yeah. And I don't know about you, but I'm not happy with that. See, I'm not willing to pay the fines for, for someone else if they break the law. I don't want to pay the damage that someone else might cause with my number plates on. I'm not prepared to have points on my license if someone uh, might drive dangerously. And I'm certainly not prepared to have a criminal record for someone else's crimes. It's outrageous, isn't it? It doesn't seem right. It's unjust. But you know what? The reason I include this is this is a small picture of exactly what Jesus Christ has done for us. We broke God's law, and yet Jesus takes the blame. See, I don't think I'm willing to take the fall for someone else for something I didn't do. But in love, Jesus did this for all of us. It says in Romans 5, verse 7, the passage we've looked at, it says, perhaps for a good person, one might dare even to die, but God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And in case you're worried, I called the police. I told them what happened. I called the DVLA. I told them what happened. I called my insurance company. I told them what happened. I told everyone I could to make sure that I didn't get blamed for these crimes. And they assured me that any crimes committed with my number plates during that time would be overlooked. And they said even for a period of time afterwards. And that's another picture of justification. Because in Christ, even our future sin will not be counted against us. 
but unlike my number plate example, obviously, there's only a small period of grace for me. Our standing with God is eternal. See, Christ's righteousness will never end. He is right with God eternally, and in Christ, our righteousness is eternal too. But please note, this is not an excuse to sin. Just like I can't now go around speeding in my car or jumping red lights or driving off without paying for petrol because hopefully it will be overlooked for a while. I've missed the point, haven't I? I've missed the point of the grace that the authorities have given me for this period. And likewise, don't miss the point of the grace that God gives you. Christ died to bring peace with God and to restore your relationship with him. Paul asks this similar question in Romans 6. He says, shall we go on sinning that grace may abound? And he answers the question, by no means. Yes, we still sin. Yes, we do the wrong thing, sometimes by mistake, sometimes on purpose, let's be honest. But if you're in Christ, there is no condemnation because you have peace with God. You've been forgiven of all your future sin. But my point is this, we can't use that to justify our sin in the future. Just towards the end of this, uh, this talk this morning, I just want to change gear perhaps and just look at a story, another story in the Bible about a woman who encountered Jesus and found peace. If you'd like to turn to uh, Luke 7, um, it'll also be behind me. I don't want to paraphrase this story because um, I think it's important that we read it all. So Luke 7, from verse 38. It says, one of the Pharisees asked him, that's Jesus, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered them, answering, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender who had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they could not pay, he cancelled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he cancelled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I've entered your, I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So this story is about finding peace with God through faith in Jesus. The event's about three main people, isn't it? The woman, the Pharisee, and Jesus. So who are they? What are they doing? So Jesus has been invited to the house of the Pharisee named Simon. Now Pharisees were a group of uh, Jews who were very influential and they 
emphasize a meticulous observance of the law as a way to be right with God. They're reclining at table. Now, from reading about this, it would have been a small, low-down table where each person would have been leaning against it on the floor, facing outwards. Imagine like the spokes of a wheel. In this culture, people would, uh, would wash their feet when they entered a person's home. Not a pleasant job at all. But it was usually the host's responsibility to make this happen. And in this case, it probably would have been a servant. As in many cultures, it was common to greet one another with a kiss. The woman was not invited, but came to see Jesus. Now, we don't know her name. Um, and for those who know your, your Bibles, in the Gospels, there's another example where Mary anoints Jesus' head with oil. But if you look at the details, it's a different home, a uh, different situation. So this isn't Mary. It's not the same story. But we don't know her name. But she comes and washes his feet with her tears and her hair. And that was not usual behavior. Pouring ointment on his feet, kissing his feet. What she did would have been considered quite improper. She was quite brave to act in this way. Why did she do it? Because she had found peace. The event shows us two people who encounter Jesus but respond in very different ways. One finds peace and one doesn't. So the Pharisee was highly religious. He followed the law perfectly. He had a high position in society. People would have looked up to him. They would have seen him as someone who should be pleasing God in the way he lives. And yet they would have looked down on this woman. She had a very different reputation, one of a sinful lifestyle. Doesn't say what the sin was, but that doesn't matter, does it? I'm not going to speculate on what it is she did or didn't do. Well, there's a danger I'm like the Pharisee in the story, and I point at her, make judgments, and I pat myself on the back and say, well, I'm not that bad, am I? She must have done this, or she must have done that, because I would never do that, and that was really bad. You see, in the Bible, all sin is unacceptable to God, and all have sinned. All sin causes separation between us and God and needs to be reconciled. If you and I took the same test, and you got most of them right, I got most of them wrong, then yes, you probably did better than me. But if the pass marks 100%, we've both failed. And that's a picture of what sin is like. Let's be careful not to point our finger at her or anyone else and miss our own sin. It says in Romans 3 that all have fallen short of God's perfect standard. See, the Pharisee condemns her, doesn't he? He's surprised that God would allow her, allow her to come near him. He says, what? He says he should know what kind of woman this is. And I think the beautiful thing here is Jesus does know what kind of woman she is. He does know her. He knows exactly what she's like. She sees her heart. And he also knows exactly what kind of man the Pharisee is, and he sees his heart too. See, they're both sinners. They both needed forgiveness. And that's why Jesus challenges Simon and tells him that story, isn't he? Again, the story is about three people, the moneylender and two people who owe a large debt. One owes 500 denarii, which is probably about 20 months' wages. The other, about two months' wages. Do you see the parallels? The two in the story have different debts of money, whereas the woman and Simon have different debts of sin. In the story, the moneylender cancelled the debt of both because they couldn't cancel it themselves. And Jesus offers forgiveness to the two people too. Those who owed the debts did nothing to clear the debt themselves. It was the moneylender who took the initiative and brought peace with them. And it says the one who owed the largest debt was most thankful 
And that, again, it's a picture of the woman. She knew how great her sin was before God. But this is exactly why she displays such an extravagant response to him. Her tears are, are thankfulness and tears of reverence to the one who has forgiven her, to the one who cancelled her de- debt and brought reconciliation to God. Jesus' forgiveness extends to Simon too, but he doesn't seem to be aware of his own sin, and therefore he doesn't seem to want or need forgiving. After all, he is very religious and does all the right things, doesn't he? See, I think his pride has blinded him for seeing Jesus who he truly is. He acknowledges him as teacher. He welcomed him to his home, but he didn't actually honor him, really. He didn't do all the things he should have done, and he certainly doesn't see him as the one who can forgive sins. I think it's interesting but sad that the Pharisee was one that was seen to be close to God, and yet he missed that God was close to him. He acknowledged him as teacher, as I said, but doesn't really show him any honor. Yet the woman, who was so aware of her sin and her separation from God, received him wholeheartedly. She knew whose feet she was washing. Her heart was overflowing with thankfulness. And Jesus did not reject her. He accepted her. He loved her and received her adoration. And that's true for us too. Jesus will never reject you because of what you've done. Nothing can separate you from his love. I do want to clarify one thing about this story, though. The woman did not receive forgiveness because of her actions. She was not forgiven because she loved much. It's the other way around. She loved much because she was forgiven. If you compare it to the story with the money, it says that the moneylender cancelled the debt first, and then, in response, the debtor showed their love for the moneylender. And that's true for this woman, too. She put her faith in Jesus. And this encounter concludes with Jesus declaring, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Amen. Can I invite the band back up, please? So just in summary, peace with God. That's our theme today. Peace with God is the state of our relationship with him when everything that separates us has been removed. Through faith in Christ's death, in our place, we have been forgiven and now stand justified before God. So do you have peace, this peace with God? As we approach Christmas, will you, how will you receive Jesus? Like the Pharisee, he's interesting, he's a good teacher. Will you go through this religious festival and just go through the motions, or actually will you receive him into your life if you haven't before? If you're not a Christian, then can I invite you to receive the greatest gift this Christmas, peace with God through Christ. And I'd like to lead you in a prayer. So this is you and you think, actually, yes, I want that peace with God, and I know it's through Christ, then I'm going to read this prayer to you. Um, The prayer I'm going to read to you is from the Why Jesus booklet. So if you don't feel like you're ready to read it today, to say it today, then please take one of these with you and uh, perhaps read through it, and when you're ready to pray it. But if you're ready, then please say this quietly to yourself or in your head after me. Lord Jesus Christ, I'm sorry for the things I've done wrong in my life. Please forgive me. I now turn from everything that I know is wrong. Thank you, you died on the cross for me so that I could be forgiven and set free. Thank you that you offer me forgiveness and the gift of your spirit. I now receive that gift. Please come into my life by your Holy Spirit to be with me forever. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.
And for those of us who already put our faith in Christ, can I encourage you to come and love much again like the woman. Let's respond afresh to this gift of Jesus and be overflowing in our thankfulness for all that he's done to bring us peace with God. Amen? Amen. Can I encourage us to stand before we worship again? And I'll pray. Father God, thank you that you sent Jesus. Thank you in this festive period and we look again to that Christmas story. We remember Christ coming to earth as a baby. And to us, a son was given. We thank you, Jesus, that you came and you lived a perfect life and you were right with the Father. And through your death, we can be right with you too. Help us to be thankful from the deepest parts of our heart for all you have done because we know we couldn't do it ourselves. We are sorry for when we still make mistakes. We're sorry for when we sin. We thank you that in your love, we know that nothing can separate us from your love. We thank you so much. Amen. Amen.